0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're back in John and we're continuing our study of the fourth gospel. We're looking kind of working our way through chapter 10 right now, which deals with this shepherd-sheep imagery. And we're really about halfway through the book now, but we're really coming near the end of Yeshua's public life and his life period. I mean, in the life of Yeshua, we're actually like three months away from his death right now. Because the last half of the Gospel of John is devoted to events that take place pretty much in the last week of his life. So he's ending up his public ministry. Now, the literary structure of verses 22 to 39, the rest of this chapter we have to look at, chapter 10, is built around two basic questions dealing with the identity of Yeshua. Verse 24 asks whether Yeshua is the Messiah. And then verse 25-30, through 30, the section we're looking at today, contains Yeshua's response. And then in verse 33 raises the question of whether Yeshua makes Himself out to be God. And then verses 34-38 through 38 present Yeshua's answer to that question. And that's, that's a significant text of Scripture, people. It's where Yeshua quotes from Psalm 82. And we're going to look at that at least next week, maybe a couple weeks. I don't know how. It's going to take us a while maybe to get through that text. It's... Very important text. But then verses 40 and 42 provide Lazarus' summary of the section of Yeshua's ministry. So this section that we're looking at is strongly Christological. It focuses on Yeshua's deity, His identity, who He is. In verses 22 through 30, which we're going to look at this morning, the subject matter is the same as verses 1 through 21. It's about the Good Shepherd and His sheep. The subject is the same, but it's a different occasion. The Lord is now back in Jerusalem, but it's now winter, and it's the Feast of Dedication. It says, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. Now at that time, this is a different time, there's a a gap between verses 21 and 22, a gap of about 10 weeks. So it's now about 10 weeks after the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, everything we've seen so far you know, in 10 was connected with the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, Lazarus tells us that Yeshua is back in Jerusalem now to attend the Feast of Dedication. So let me ask you a question here, Bible scholars. Where in Scripture do we find this feast? If I want to learn about the Feast of Dedication, where do I go? <laughs> That's a safe answer. John ten twenty two. No, I want some more. I want some description of the feast. All right, it's not in Leviticus twenty three with all the rest of the feast. Where would I find this? Before you think too hard, we don't. a trick question. The Feast of Dedication is not in the Jewish. Or the Protestant canon. But you can find it in the Apocrypha. That's right, in the Maccabees. Anybody know what the Apocrypha is? You're familiar with that? You've heard that term, right? No, it's not. The Apocrypha comes from the Greek word things that are hidden or secret. And it refers to two collections of ancient Jewish and Christian writings The Old Testament Apocrypha, which is viewed as canonical by many Christians. And then there's the New Testament Apocrypha, which are not. The New Testament Apocrypha, like the New Testament Pseudepigrapha, is mostly not regarded too highly. The Old Testament ones are better. The Old Testament Apocrypha is a collection of Jewish books that are included in the Old Testament canons of the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church but it's not in the Protestant Scriptures. all right. Most of the books were composed in Hebrew prior to the Christian era, but they apparently never were accepted by the Jews as part of the Hebrew canon, so they're not in the Jewish Scriptures. They are eventually included in Christian copies of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and later in the Latin Vulgate. Now the Protestant Reformers, while affirming the unique authority of the Hebrew canon, allowed that the books of the Apocrypha were useful for reading. And I agree with him. I think they're they're useful, especially the Maccabees. Tremendous history there. Over time, however, the Apocrypha has fallen into disuse among Protestants. Most Protestants have never really heard of the Apocrypha. Now, if you get a Catholic Bible, like a Douay Confraternity version, there's the 13 extra books between the Old and the New, which is the Apocrypha. Some of them are a little more wild than others, but like I said, the Maccabees are pretty good. First and second Maccabees, that are part of this apocrypha, outline the history of the Maccabees, Jewish leaders who led a rebellion of the Jews against the Seleucid dynasty from 175 B.C. to 134. The first book portrays the events of the Jews to regain their culture and religious independence from Antiochus Epiphanes. They want to get back to the temple. He had desecrated the temple. Talk about that more in a minute. So 1 Maccabees chapter 4 establishes this feast of dedication. This is the Maccabees. He says, There was very great joy among the people, and the disgrace brought by the Gentiles was removed. Then Judas and his brothers and all the assembly of Israel determined that every year, at the season of the days of dedication of the altar, should be observed with joy and gladness for eight days, this is the, the feast. It's called the Feast of Dedication, and it's to be observed with joy and gladness. They say for eight days, beginning with the twenty fifth day of the month Kislev. Anybody know what that is? Twenty fifth of December. Okay, twenty fifth of December. Does that ring a bell? <laughs> At that time, they fortified Mount Zion with high walls and strong towers all around to keep the Gentiles from coming and trampling them down as they had done before. Now, on this feast of dedication, Hall Harris writes this, The Greek name for the feast literally means renewal and was used to translate Hanukkah, which means dedication. The Greek noun which is re- and it's related, with its related verbs was the standard term used in the Septuagint for the consecration of the altar of the tabernacle. So that's the word they use for the tabernacle. And he says the altar of the temple of Solomon and the altar of the second temple. The word is thus connected with the consecration of all the houses of God in the history of the nation of Israel. So this word, dedication, is used in the dedication of all the houses of God. So the Jews instituted this feast during the Easter intertestamental period. That's between Malachi and Matthew. And the Jews instituted it. This is, you know, in Leviticus 23, we have the feasts of the Lord. This is not a feast that God said, okay, here's a feast I want you to do. This is a feast that the people said, hey, we got to do this. It's known by the, uh, the Hebrew word for dedication, which is Hanukkah. You know it as Hanukkah. It's celebrated in the month of December, and I think you're familiar with that. You know, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah in that month. It was a national feast, and it was instituted by the people. It was instituted by the great military leader, Judas Maccabees, to celebrate the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C., after they had defeated the Syrian invader Antiochus Epiphanes, who profaned the temple. Three years earlier, he brought in, he replaced a brazen altar with a pagan one on which he offered a pig as a sacrifice to Jupiter. They're doing this in the temple, okay? You can imagine how the Jews are upset about this. Antiochus attempted to Hellenize Judea. He just tried to wipe out all the Hebrew and make everybody a Greek. But the Jewish patriarch, Judas Maccabees, who was known as Judas the Hammer, was able to lead a guerrilla revolt that was born his name ever since that. And after three years, he defeated the Syrians and he liberated the Jews. And then they rededicated the temple to Yahweh. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes means Antiochus the Supreme One. But the people changed one letter and called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means the madman. All right, so that's the he, that's how they felt about him. He was definitely a crazy man. And, and listen, if you want to read the Maccabees, their great history of that intertestamental period and what happened in the wars that went on then, and how you know Antiochus had taken over the temple and desiccated it, and desecrated it, and how they got it back and you know set things back right. Now, according to the Talmud, a miracle took place in the rebuilding of the altar when they're rededicate, getting the altar back together. It took eight days to rebuild the altar, and during that time, one vial of consecrated olive oil that was found provided a continuous supply of oil to the golden menorah until the priest could return to the temple with more oil eight days later. So they're saying, this is a miracle. We had one vial of oil, we put it in the menorah, burned for eight days. That's why the festival is an eight-day festival. And it was also celebrated with lights because the menorah stayed burning for those eight days. Now, from a historical standpoint, this was the last great deliverance that the Jewish people had experienced. Remember, right now, in our text, they're under domination of Rome. So this was the last great deliverance. And it came at a time when they least expected it. Josephus ends his account of the institution of the festival with the following statement. And from that time to the present, we observe this festival, which we call the Festival of Lights, giving this name to it, I think, from the fact that the right to worship appeared to us at a time when we hardly dared hope for it. In other words, this was a dark time for them. The temple had been taken over by the Greeks. It was just, and all of a sudden, Judas Maccabees leads this revolt and gets, defeats them and kicks them back out. All right. <coughs> so this feast was also called the Feast of Lights because of the lighting of candles. And, uh, you know, the, in the Jewish homes to celebrate this feast. Both the use of lights and the joyousness of the occasion caused it to be compared with the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, it was called a Feast of Tabernacles in the month of Kislev. Alright, so this was just like another Feast of Tabernacles. And the idea of lighting candles, you know, we get all that connected with Christmas and all that stuff. Unlike Tabernacles, however, you didn't have to go to the temple to celebrate this. You could celebrate it at home. All right. The, it was a festival instituted by the people. Now, since the feast also celebrated freedom from foreign oppression, the Jews in the first century, suffering under the domination of the Romans, naturally were consumed with thoughts of national deliverance. That's what this feast is about. It's about deliverance being set free. So they're under Rome, and they're, you know, there's this high expectancy of, you know, a Messiah is going to show up, and he's going to free us from this. And it may well be that Lazarus records here in in order for us to get this distinct impression that true deliverance comes from Messiah alone. And Lazarus, who loves symbolism, may want us to see that Yeshua fulfills all that this feast stands for. He is the new temple. We saw that in chapter 2.19. Just as God delivered His people under the Maccabees, so He delivers His people under Yeshua. Yeshua. So there's this messianic expectation and they're dealing with this and now he goes in in the 23rd verse he says it was winter. And Yeshua's walking in the temple of the portico of Solomon. So it's winter now and because it's winter, he's in the portico of Solomon. Alright? And uh, he goes to the temple to teach. He's walking up and down in the portico of Solomon and this was a colonnade on the eastern side of the court of the Gentiles in the temple complex. It was a roof structure supported on col- by columns or pillars, and would have given shelter from the winter rains and the winter winds. It was an enclosed place. So according to the 1st century A.D. historian Josephus, the people believed that that porch was all that remained of Solomon's original temple. That's why it's called the Portico of Solomon. They believed that you know when, when uh, the Babylonians came in the 6th century B.C. and destroyed this, that they left that. So the temple was built up from that. That's the original part of Solomon's temple. And it formed the boundary of the temple precincts. And we see when we get into Acts chapter 3 that this is the area where Peter and John are standing with the crippled man that just got healed. And they're teaching in the same portico. So there's history behind this portico. And the Jews, it says, gathered around him. So he's walking up and down. He's in this portico. The Jews see him. They come and they gather around him. And we're saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You know, if you don't laugh when you read this, you're not getting what's going on. How long will you keep us in suspense? I mean, we we really don't know who you are. Are you really the Christ? (laughs) You know, the Jews are not seeking clarity here because they want to worship. You know, we we really would like to worship you, but we're not sure you are who you say you are. Are you really the Messiah? The reason they wanted to make this clear is they wanted an accusation so they could kill Him. The Jews are clearly antagonistic. (coughs) Excuse me. Yeshua had often alluded to being the Messiah when He spoke but not when he spoke publicly to the Jews. I mean, he's alluded to it in public discussion, but never in public has he come out and said, I am the Messiah. He did say that one time, but it was with the Samaritan woman. So the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. All the Jews knew that. They're waiting for it. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. So he identified himself to this woman as Messiah who she hoped for. Now this is the only time that he clearly identified himself as Messiah before his trial. He'll do it at the trial. He didn't reveal himself to the Jews as Messiah because their idea of Messiah was a political leader who would overthrow Rome. And again, they're at the feast of dedication. This feast celebrates deliverance. So here comes, are you the Messiah? Are you going to overthrow Rome? Are you going to set us free like Judas Maccabees did? Yeshua did not come as that kind of Messiah. That wasn't what the Bible taught. This feast celebrated a military victory. And Yeshua wasn't going to fit into that category. Now earlier, when Yeshua said, before Abraham was, I am. They picked up stones to throw at him. Because they knew what he was saying and they wanted him dead. They knew exactly who he claimed to be. But again, this is all pretense. They're looking for some kind of declaration from Him so they can stone Him to death. That's all they want to do. They're not looking for the truth. So Yeshua answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. I told you, He says, and you just don't believe. Now, He didn't give them a definitive answer to their question, are you the Messiah? Yes, I'm the Messiah. Because He knew that statement would seal His death and he needs three more months before his death comes. So he hasn't said it. But he did tell him in a figure of speech about the door and the good shepherd and the sheep. He used all these things to illustrate to him. That, and it was very clear. He had told them that he's the one who, like Isaiah 53, lays down his life for the sheep. He made that clear. If they're paying attention, they could have connected that. He told them he was the one who has supernatural authority to take back his own life from death. He says, I lay down my life, I take it back up. If they're paying attention, they're like, well, that's got to be someone pretty special if you can take up your own life again. He says he's the one who's gathering his sheep to live forever in his presence. He had told them, but they can't hear. And that brings up again the reoccurring theme of listening to the voice of Yeshua, which is commanded of Yahweh in Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. He's talking to Moses. I'm going to raise up another prophet like you, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth. How many times has Yeshua said, I only speak what the Father gives me? He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words which he will speak in my name, I myself will require required of him. They saw the miracles that Yeshua did. They viewed Him in some sense at least to be a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, but they wouldn't listen to Him. Now Yeshua didn't say outright to the Jews, I'm Messiah, but He had pointed to it over and over in so many ways. You know, for someone with ears to hear, Yeshua made clear claims about His identity. Notice what He said in John 5, 17 and 18. He says, He answered them, My Father working until now, and I myself am working. Remember, the, the issue here is he's working on the Sabbath, and so they're accusing him of breaking the Sabbath. He said, my father works on the Sabbath, and I work on the Sabbath too. And that's like, wow, they, got, they didn't like that. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. What did he do wrong? It says, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Tell us plainly, How many times did he tell them already? They understood it because they wanted to kill him before. Yeshua told them this verse is a significant verse. If you don't have this verse marked in your Bible, you need it marked in your Bible because there's a lot of religions out there that claim to love God. And this verse says they don't have a clue who God is. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. You get that? Without Christ... You don't worship God. You don't come to God without Christ. Over and over, you should claim to be Yahweh. He does this all through this text in John 5. He insists that He is to be worshipped in the same way Yahweh is. He's to be honored, praised, adored, respected, trusted, obeyed in the same way as God the Father. And without doing that, you don't come to the Father. So if you think that Jews worship the same God we do, they don't. They don't worship any God according to Yeshua. So they either come through Christ, and that makes them Christian, or they're wrong. John 6, 38 and 39. I have come down from heaven. Well, that's interesting. How many people do that? Not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That is the will of Him who sent me that all that He has given me, I will lose nothing but raise it up at the last day. So here He claims to come down from heaven, and He claims to have the power of resurrection. Over and over again, He made statements which made it clear He was claiming to be the Messiah. I think it's safe to say that our Lord has been more than clear in His claims. It's the blindness of the Jews that prevents them from recognizing Him as Messiah. Not only had He told them who He was, He showed them. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify to me. I mean, the works surely should show you who I am. Not only could the Jews not hear or understand what Yeshua was saying, they couldn't see the evidence right before them. He was continually performing miracles in their midst. And it was these miracles that caused Nicodemus, a Pharisee, to say this. This man came to Yeshua by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God. Well, Nicodemus, how do you know that? Well, he says, No one can do these signs you do unless God is with them. I mean, that's just plain common sense, people. You see people doing these kind of things he's doing, you're like, Something's different about this guy. Can't put my finger on it, but something's different. I mean, he's raising the dead, he's healing the sick, he's feeding thousands of people, he's doing all these things. See, here's the thing. Yeshua makes the claim to be God, and then he backs it up with supernatural miracles. He claims to be God, and he supports that claim with miracles made in public so everyone can see it. These miracles that are described in the fourth gospel are not simply described in order to show us that Yeshua has supernatural power. The miracles were authenticating signs of His deity and His Messiahship. In John chapter 5, Yeshua heals a lame man. Do you remember back that far? Yeshua speaks to this man, and immediately he becomes well. He'd been crippled for 38 years. Yeshua speaks, he's up, and he's totally healed. Now here's what's interesting. Okay, you're watching, you're a Jew. As a Jew, you know the Tanakh. You read it, you read it, you read it. Time you were 12 years old, you had been through that so many times, you had most of it memorized. Okay, so you know the Bible. So you're a Jew and you're sitting there, and along comes this guy who's saying he's a Messiah, and he just heals a lame man. And you're thinking, oh my word, Isaiah 35, 5, and 6 says the Messiah will heal the lame. They don't put it together. It's proof for all Jerusalem to see, but they miss it. We you know the Bible says the Messiah will. Heal the lame, he heals the lame. Nah, he's not Messiah. And they say to him, tell us plainly? How plain does it get? In John chapter 9, Yeshua says, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And what's he do next? He gives sight to a blind man. A man who was blind from birth. He gives him sight. And guess what? One of the signs of coming Messiah would be that He'd open the eyes of the blind. Another coincidence. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Isaiah 29, 18. On that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. And they say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? People, what do you want me to do for you? How more can I demonstrate to you? that I am the Christ. It can't get any clearer. But people who are spiritually blind just can't see it. To you and me, it's like, that's simple, that's logic, it's common sense. They don't see it. But to those who had eyes, to those that were His sheep, they got it. Look what He says in John 2.23. Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in His name. Why? Watch it. Observing the signs with you, they're seeing this stuff and they're going, Oh my word, this must be Messiah, and they believe. So, why didn't these miracles cause all the Jews to believe? They knew the prophecies of Messiah, they knew that Yeshua was filling them right in front of their eyes. Why didn't they believe? Well, Yeshua gives us the answer in the next verse. He says, You do not believe, in case you're wondering, because You're not my sheep. Now, Yeshua here returns to the sheep-shepherd metaphor that He used in 1 through 18. Sheep follow the shepherd. The Jews refuse to follow Yeshua because they're not His sheep. Look at verse 4. When He puts forth all His own, He goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow Him because they know His voice. Now notice that it says here, when He puts forth... His own. His own wife, his own sheep. These sheep belong to Him. And they, because they belong to Him, they know His voice. The Jews will not follow Yeshua because they don't know His voice because they're not His sheep. You are not of My sheep. Now listen. Please listen. This is important. He doesn't say, you're not My sheep because you don't believe in Me. That's what churchianity says. Oh, well, you're not a sheep because you just don't believe. That's not what he said. He said, the reason you don't believe, the reason you can't believe, the reason you will not believe, you're not my sheep. You don't belong to me. The ultimate reason they didn't understand Yeshua was that they were not of his sheep. Now, to many who are Arminian in their soteriology, this is offensive. Arminians don't like this verse. I'm sorry. Yeshua said this. Not me, okay? Yeshua was telling His listeners that He had not called them. They had not been given to Him by the Father. They did not belong to His flock, so their unbelief was no surprise. And the reality is this, people. You cannot come to Christ unless God calls you. You can't do it. I mean, if we've seen anything in this Gospel so far, hopefully we've seen that. You can't come unless you're called. Yeshua was emphasizing their inability to believe. Now we saw the same thing back in 643 and 44. We' speaking to his unbelieving opponents. Yeshua said this. Yeshua answered and he said to them, "Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws them, and I'll raise them up at the last day. Don't grumble. They're grumbling because they didn't get what he was saying. So he says, oh, don't grumble. You can't come. What? No, you can't come unless the Father draws you. That's the only way you can come. Now, he doesn't say no one comes to me unless he comes forward at the altar call. He joins the church. He gets baptized. He doesn't say any of that stuff. Nobody comes unless the Father draws him. And God, when God draws, he draws irresistibly. Okay, And in case they missed it, he says it again. He was saying to them, for this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it's been granted by the Father. So over and over, Yeshua emphasized to unbelievers their inability to believe in Him. Why would He do that? Why would He tell people who are struggling, trying to figure this out, you can't believe, you can't come to me, you can't be my sheep. Unless God called. Why would He do that? He wants to demonstrate man's total inability to come to God on his own. Salvation is of the Lord. Now, in our society today, we don't like that because we got free will and we'll do whatever the heck we want to do, okay? And if we want to come to Christ, we'll come to Christ, you know? So we'll make God be subject to our wills and whatever, all right? But no, He was trying to tell them, listen, apart from a work of God, You will not come. You'll not come. Look what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. He's repeating here what he taught early in this chapter. His sheep listen to his voice. He knows them and it means that no here has the idea of an intimate knowledge, a relationship. And they follow him because they belong to him. Look at verse 28. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. This is another claim to deity. You see it? Who gives eternal life? God, all right? Another claim to deity. No one can give eternal life. And notice that he doesn't say they have earned eternal life. Eternal life is a gift, okay? I give eternal life to them. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done that we are saved. Look how Paul puts it in Romans 4. I think this is really clear, but people miss this, all right? Now, to the one who works, you go out, you do your job. Let's say you're a day laborer. Keep it simple, okay? You go out and you work for the day. You spend eight or ten hours. He works. At the end of the day, you come, your boss comes and gives you the wage. His wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. So, your boss comes to you at the end of the day and says, I got a gift for you. Here's your paycheck. If he tells you it's a gift, he's insulting you. He's saying, You didn't do Jack today, okay? This is just a gift. No, it's not a gift. You've earned it. It's not credited as favor, it's what is due you. Now, watch. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. He doesn't work, he doesn't do anything except believe on Christ. So people, we cannot earn eternal life. We don't deserve it. If man can in some way save himself, the death of Christ was worthless and useless. We don't need it. We don't need it. But we can't save ourselves. If Christ gives us life, what does that imply? implies we were dead, right? We didn't have life. And he's talking in a spiritual sense here. We were spiritually dead. Think about this. It is only those who have spiritual life that can communicate with others who have spiritual life. You understand what I'm saying? You ever tried to talk to somebody who doesn't have spiritual life? They're like, it's right over there. I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying. I don't, I. They can't get it. They don't share that bond. And you know when you run into somebody who shares that bond, who has that eternal life, there's a connection there. You get it. Because you both have life. There's a barrier between the spiritual life that we possess as a gift from Yeshua and the natural life we possess by reason of birth. And only those who are spiritual, who have been born of the Spirit, get it. I give them eternal life and He said they will (coughs) never perish. What does it say will not happen to the sheep? They're not going to perish. Now, it doesn't say many would have this say. They won't go to hell. They won't suffer forever throughout eternity. No, it says perish. That's what the Bible says. If you compare this verse to another verse we already looked at, does it sound real familiar? Eternal life and perishing? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Same thing, he's saying the same thing here, they won't perish. And, you know, we went into perish in depth in that verse, so I would encourage you to go back to John 3.16 and look at what we had to say about perish. The Bible talks about people perishing, it doesn't talk about people burning in hell for eternity. All right? The contrast here is perish and eternal life. Those who trust Christ, they don't perish. Now the construction of the Greek clause here they shall never perish literally reads they will indeed not ever perish. This is the strongest way you can say that in the Greek text. You couldn't emphasize it anymore if you wanted to. Yeshua had previously said that part of His task that the Father had given Him was to preserve all those the Father gave Him. John 6, 37-40 and He's going to do that and they will never perish. Now A question that's frequently asked is, can a Christian lose their salvation? I mean, that question's always asked in the church. If a person receives eternal life from the Lord, all right, you get eternal life, so now I'm a Christian, so can a Christian lose their salvation? And then if they lost it, at some point, Yeshua could not have said they will never perish. But he says if you get eternal life, you won't perish. So I would say that no. If you got it, you can't lose it. Of course, you can think you have it, pretend you have it, not really have it, but if you got it, you got it. Listen, eternal life, by definition, lasts a long, long time. Okay? Eternal. It's not temporary. It's not, there's not a 5, 10, 15-year plan. There's only one plan, and that's eternal. And when you believe, you get it. Luther once said this. If we perish... Christ perishes with us. Do you understand that statement? It is impossible for sheep to ever perish. Christ said we wouldn't. So if we perish, sheep perishes. I've said before you have as much chance of losing your salvation as Christ has of getting kicked out of the Trinity. No chance. You're secure. Our eternal salvation rests in God's decree. We live forever because God chose us to live forever. Our ultimate security rests with the shepherd. No one, he says, will snatch them out of my hand. Over and over, Yeshua has asserted his deity. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and his sheep are safe in his hand. My Father who has given them me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. How does anyone get to be one of Yeshua's sheep? He says, the Father who has given them to me. We've been over this, all right? The Father gives the sheep to the Son. He said the same thing in 637. All that the Father gives me will come to me. He says it again in 639. This is the will of Him who sent me that all He has given me, I lose, how many? Nothing. You don't lose any. In His high priestly prayer in John 17, Yeshua repeatedly refers to those whom the Father has given Him. Now let's look at this phrase for a second. My Father who has given them, so the Father is the one who gave the sheep to Yeshua, is greater than all. Now, this opening phrase has several different readings and different Greek manuscripts. All right, we have a lot. We don't have any original manuscripts. Everybody understand that? We don't have any original writings that the Apostle Paul wrote or anybody else wrote. We don't have them. We have a lot of Greek manuscripts. And so they compare the different manuscripts, and there's differences in some of them. Well, there's different readings here. Many have, as we see here in the New American Standard, my Father who has given me is greater than all. But several older manuscripts, and the older the manuscript are, they kind of feel it's more reliable because later it would get changed, not earlier. The older manuscripts say this, that which my Father has given me is greater than all. you see the difference there? That's a big difference, isn't it? In one case, we're speaking of the Father and the fact that He's greater than all. In the second case, it is what the Father has given that is greater than all. So which is it? Well, scholars claim that the older manuscripts have stronger support and the older manuscripts have that second reading, the one in yellow there, which is probably the better reading. And I think this is pretty cool here. Okay? The New Revised Standard Version says, what my Father has given me is greater than all else. Today's English version says, what my Father has given me is greater than everything. The New Jerusalem Bible says, the Father, for what He has given me, is greater than anyone. So if the older reading is true, and I believe it is, what He is saying is, that which the Father has given me, what did the Father give Him? The sheep. Is greater than all. In other words, The church, the flock of God, is greater than anything. Yeshua is declaring how precious His sheep really are to Him. This passage is dealing with security. And He just wants you to know, that which the Father has given me, you sheep, you are greater than anything. Greater than anything. So great, I'll die for you. Look at Acts 20.28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's how precious we are to Christ. That we are more valuable. That's the greatness of the body of Christ. The great regard that the Father and Son has for the sheep guarantees that he'll take care of them. Because they're greater than anything. Now, we're not going to argue about that text because we know the Father is greater than all, okay? But that's just not what that text is saying, I don't think saying the sheep are greater than all, and that's why we do everything to protect them. He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, he says, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Huh. So here's here's what this means. When the Father gives His sheep into the omnipotent hand of the Son, they're still in His hand also. He's given these sheep to the Son, but He's still hanging on because it's part of the Godhead and they're protecting their sheep. They're protecting what's precious to them. In verse 12, Yeshua said that wolves would attack His flock. And the word He used for attack there is the same word that is translated here as snatch. No one will snatch them from my hand. No wolf will come. No enemy will come and take them. This is one of the clearest promises of the eternal security of the believer that God has given in His Word. Concerning this text, A.W. Pink says this, No stronger passage in all the Word of God can be found guaranteeing the absolute security of every child of God. Paul put it this way in Romans. Sharon read this earlier. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Just wondering, who can? Will tribulation or distress, persecution, famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as is written, for your sake, We're being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we're overwhelmingly conquered through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is Yeshua our Lord. Nothing can separate us. Why? Because we're in the Father's hand. We're in the Son's hand. We have total security. I've had people argue with me about this verse. Well, I can separate myself. No, it says you can't. Because I think you're a created thing. Okay? Nor any other created thing. There's nothing. This is security. Our salvation is eternally secure. God is for us. And there's nothing can separate us from our love. Our salvation, people, is ultimately due to God's faithfulness, not ours. Another term for eternal security would be what we Calvinists call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You heard of that, right? It's one of the five points of Calvinism. You know, we use the acronym TULIP, right? You know what the Arminian flower is? Daisy. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Okay? We go by the tulip, all right? What's the T stand for? Total, Total deprived. deprived. Listen, man is separated from God and there's nothing he could do to earn God's favor, to get back right with God. That, it all starts with that. If you got the T down, the rest is self-evident, I think. What's the U? Unconditional election. In other words, God chooses you. Why? Because you're such a nice person. Unconditional. Now, there's no condition. God just looks and He says, I'm going to pick out Sean. Why? Look at Sean's not that great a God. <laughs> and God goes, I, God goes, I don't care. I'm going to set my love on Him. And it's not because of Him. It's not because of anything He's going to do. It's unconditional. You know, people want to say, well, God looked back in eternity or looked forward and He said, oh, Sean's going to be a good guy. I'll choose Him. No. He's a good guy because he got chosen. Oh, what's the L for? Limited atonement. Oh, people hate that. What do you mean the atonement's limited? The Armenians limit the atonement way more than we do. Don't they? <laughs> All right. Irresistible grace. In other words, when God calls, you come. It's irresistible. That's what he said in John 6. When you're drawn, you come. And the P is for perseverance of the saints. So when someone says they believe in the perseverance of the saints, you have to find out what they mean, because this doctrine can be interpreted in two different ways. All right? Number view one, a true Christian will never fall away, but will live a life of holiness and obedience. They will always persevere in holiness, and they will always live a holy life. If that doesn't scare you, something's wrong. If that doesn't scare you, you think way more of yourself than you ought to think, okay? Because that's not too comforting to me. As long as I do right, I'll be right. No. As long as I do right, God will love me. All right, view two. This is the one I hold to. No one whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Yeshua will ever be lost. The term perseverance of the saints is to me synonymous with eternal security. Spurgeon said this, It is not so much the perseverance of the saints that is prominent as it is the preservation of the saints by God. I like that. God keeps us. It's about Him. All right, so no one's going to snatch them out of my hand. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's security. Now listen, the the majority of churchgoers do not understand that salvation is not based on what we do, but on what Christ did. People don't get that. They think that their relationship with God is based on their performance. They think that as long as they live right, that God will not condemn them. That is a works system. And to attempt to live the Christian life by works is to live under constant guilt and condemnation because you'll never live up to it. But to understand that salvation is by grace through faith and that we are absolutely secure because of what Christ's done will bring peace to your heart. I don't need to go to bed at night saying, "Did I? Let me see, what did I mess up today? Am I still saved? Oh, I know I'm still saved. Let me say this. If you think a person can lose their salvation, then you do not understand salvation. I don't say that to be mean. I'm not trying to, you know, pick a fight or be ornery. I just believe this with all my heart. If you think a person can lose it, you don't understand it. Because another thing you don't understand is you don't understand what we've studied so far okay, in this Gospel. Because Yeshua makes it clear over and over that salvation and security of the sheep are not a result of the sheep's efforts, but rather the sovereign will and working of the shepherd. First of all, our salvation is dependent upon the choice of the Father in eternity past. That's where it starts. In eternity past, Ephesians 1, God chose before the foundation of the He chose people for Himself. He chose out of the mass of humanity a people to give to His Son. All humanity says, I choose this group. I'm going to give them to my Son as a love gift. The only ones who believe the Son are the ones the Father gave to the Son. And the Son dies for the salvation of the sheep that the Father gave Him. And all the sheep that the Father gave Him believe on the Son and are given eternal life and they will never perish. The elect sheep are kept safe in the hands of the Father and the Son. It is the sovereignty of God that assures our salvation. No one overrules his will. No one overpowers him. No one nullifies what he has achieved. No one takes away those he has purchased. Our God is sovereign and our salvation is secure. It's not about us, people. And if you make it about you, first of all, you're going to deal with a lot of guilt and condemnation because you're never going to live up. And secondly, you you think way more highly of yourself than you can think. That I'm doing this, so God's happy with me. He's happy with you because you're in Christ. And guess what? In Christ, you're righteous. You're perfect. You're His child. Do you mess up? Yeah. You're going to mess up. But it's just like a father and son relationship. When your kid mess up, you don't throw them out. You might discipline them, but they're still your kid. Especially with God, okay? Once He makes you a child, you're a child forever. He only gives eternal life. And the life He gives to someone, they will never perish. This is a beautiful... You know, people, Armenians hate this. Because sometimes they, how, they think that, well, if you think that, then you could just do whatever you want and you don't have to work hard and you don't have to do this and, you know, you make a mockery of God. It's just, it's understanding the glories of who God is. Salvation is just about Him. He called me. That's why I came. He gave me life. That's why I believe. Don't make it about you. Salvation is to bring glory to God, not to man. He ends this section by saying, I and my Father are one. This is the third time Yeshua declares that He and the Father are one. He has made the same cl- claim in John 5.17. He made it in 8.58. He is claiming unity and equality of the Godhead. We're one. Now, you know, a lot of commentators want to say that Yeshua here means that the Father and Son are united in their resolve to keep the sheep. I agree with that, but that's not the extent of this, Okay. Because if that's all He was saying, why did the Jews say this? They picked up stones to stone Him. What? He says that and they want to kill Him. And Yeshua answered, I've showed you a lot of good works from the Father, for which are you stoning Me? In other words, what good work did I do that you want to kill Me for? And the Jews answered Him, for a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. How did I blaspheme? He goes, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. People, that is a very significant text there. Next week, and we're going to really delve into that because it's, it's important. You've got to get his answer here. Most people... Listen, I have not found one commentator that I agree with on this text of what he's talking about here. Okay? Here's the issue. They're saying you're a man and you're making yourself out to be God. And in Yeshua's argument, he proves... He is God. So it's very significant that you get the right text and understand the text or you won't get that He's saying He's God. Alright? They got the point. They probably understood His allusion you know, here to Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. And He's saying, the Father and I are one. He's claiming to be one with the Father in divine essence. And when Yeshua said, I and the Father are one, He didn't mean He and the Father were the same person. That's important to understand that too. Yeshua is one in substance with the Father as far as divine essence or nature is concerned, but the Father and the Son are distinct persons of the Trinity. Augustine wrote, Listen to the Son Himself. I and the Father are one. He did not say, I am the Father, or I and the Father are one person. But when he says, I and the Father are one, notice the two words, we are and one. For if they are one, then they are not diverse. If we are then there is both a father and a son. Now the Jews asked for a sign, you know, tell us plainly. It was only because of their blindness that they even said this. They had so much evidence of His Messiahship. But they say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And He says, I'm the Father One. Get that. He gave them far more than they asked for. He gave them a claim to deity, Him and the Father are one. Now the Jews understood this as a claim to deity. That's why they said, you being a man, make yourself to be God. They saw Him only as a man. Really? How is that possible? How do men raise the dead? How do men give blind men a sight? How do they give a man who's been crippled 38 years to get up and walk and he jumps up and walks? Have you ever seen that? And they don't get it? How is it possible After all that he's done, they don't understand that he's claiming to be God. Now next week, we'll look at Yeshua's defense in being called God. And for his defense, he quotes Psalm 82, verse 6. So look at that and see if you get how that's his defense. And we'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you of the clarity in the Scriptures that your sheep are your sheep forever. Your sheep are only your sheep because the Father has given them to you in a sovereign act. Lord, I thank you for the truth of the gospel. It brings joy to our hearts. It brings freedom to our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Lord, I pray that as we contemplate your great eternal love for us, that it would motivate us as your children to live a holy and righteous life out of a heart of gratitude for all that you have done for us. Amen.